This is what's called a step wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Ellen Levader with you. Today, what suicide prevention in Indigenous communities could look like and a novel way for nurses to engage with research papers. So we came up with the idea of a Twitter journal club whereby students would engage through a Twitter account and engage with the critical appraisal of a research article. But first on the show, if you've ever seen multiple GPs in a year, you know how frustrating it can be to explain your health story, your family history of disease, the medication you're on, your allergies. Now, imagine if during pregnancy you had to tell up to 30 people your story every time you went to an antenatal appointment. You had to tell them about your previous pregnancies, what you wanted for your labour and who your partner is. This is one of the downfalls in the way maternity care is currently delivered to the majority of pregnant women in Australia. There is a renewed push for midwifery continuity of care to be made more available across the country, as more and more evidence links this model of care to improved outcomes for women. Uh, My name is Katie Cameron and I am the mother of two girls, uh, Macy who was born in May 2013 and Ruby who's two and she was born in October 2014. What you're about to hear is the tale of two births and of multiple midwives and doctors. Katie is a mother of two who lives in Toowoomba, 120 kilometres west of Brisbane in Queensland. Four years ago, when Katie found out she was pregnant with Macy, she booked in to see a midwife. Which we sort of go up into the clinic and you sit and you sort of, you've got an appointment time, but you go into a queue to see the midwife and they take you in and do the whole intake process and decide whether you're low risk or high risk and go through all the different programs that they've got up at the hospital. There were three options of care for Katie at Toowoomba Base Hospital she could opt for shared care with her GP and the maternity clinic. She could have all her appointments go through the hospital maternity clinic or she could choose the midwifery group practice. Katie was told that if she chose the midwifery group practice or MGP, she wouldn't have access to an epidural. As a first-time mum, Katie wanted to keep her options open, so she opted for shared care. Going through the maternity clinic meant that each time Katie presented for an antenatal appointment, she met whichever midwife was on shift. And when you went to your antenatal appointments at the hospital, were you seeing the same midwife each time? No. If you were lucky, you may have. So I may have seen one of the midwives a couple of times throughout my pregnancy, but I didn't have the same midwife each time. So each time the midwife had to read the file and read the pregnancy health record and speak to me about you know, health issues in the family and whether I had any symptoms and all of that sort of thing. You had to go through it each time. And for Katie, this was especially hard because this was actually her second pregnancy. 
she'd had a miscarriage before getting pregnant with Macy. Did you have to tell the midwives about your previous miscarriage? Yes, each time. <laughs> so, um, you know, they generally say this is the first pregnancy and you say, oh, no, actually it's the second one sort of thing. So, And um, how did that make you feel having to explain that every appointment? It, it does get frustrating having to explain everything each appointment. I mean, particularly having to explain that you've had a miscarriage before and all of that sort of thing. So that was sort of one of the only risk factors. But, yeah, it's frustrating to have to have explained it time and time again. Katie's pregnancy progressed more or less as normal. Her labour was a different story, though. She ended up having a 29-hour labour. Katie had an epidural, which slowed things down. Macy was vacuumed out, and Katie ended up having stitches and a catheter. It was a fairly rough ride. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, about a 29-hour labour from the first contractions at home through until when she was born. So it was, yeah, it was a long couple of days, I think, at Ben's calculation, by the time he got home from the hospital very early Saturday morning, he'd been up for 49 hours. Ben being Katie's husband. So for the second time round, Katie was determined to do things differently. After talking to the midwives, she found an epidural was actually possible in midwifery group practice. I had learnt from the midwives at that point that if I did need an epidural while I was in the birth centre program, I could have one. They just needed to move me out to a different room. So that sort of calmed the nerves a bit and I was sort of more determined to avoid one because that's what had caused the labour to halt the first time. The other advantage was that Katie would know her midwife throughout pregnancy. In the midwifery model of care at Toowoomba, the midwives work in pairs. So if your primary midwife is unavailable, another midwife can step in. And so how important was it for you to know your midwife? It was a lot more calming the second time knowing the midwife and having had her routinely through all of the appointments in that I knew when I rang her if I had an issue because the baby hadn't been moving or I'd had headaches or I was unwell. She knew my file and she knew the background and the health and I'd had my appointments with her so she knew sort of what was norm and what wasn't norm for us. And her labour with second baby Ruby, it went much more smoothly. Katie went into labour in the early hours of Monday morning. I had Ruby and that was at quarter past ten in the morning and we were discharged about four o'clock that afternoon. So we were sort of home within 12 hours of being at the hospital and I, I had a few stitches with Ruby where my scar tissue had torn but otherwise it was all standard and healthy. And The positive experience Katie had with her second child, well, she's lucky she had it. It's estimated only 8% of women in Australia have access to midwifery continuity of care. We don't really know how many women have access. There's been a nice study from my colleagues in Melbourne that's come out recently where they have surveyed midwifery managers across the country, not all the midwifery managers, but as many as they could, and then they've done an estimation and they've estimated it's probably about 8% of women get midwifery continuity of care. This is Caroline Homer, Professor of Midwifery at the University of Technology, Sydney. She has recently written a narrative review in the Medical Journal of Australia examining the evidence for midwifery continuity of care. Midwifery continuity of care is where uh, women get to know their midwife, sometimes more than one midwife, but usually not more than four. So they have the same midwives through pregnancy 
and the same midwives will attend them in labour and birth and the same midwives will see them in the postnatal period. So rather than the current system where you end up meeting possibly up to 30 different midwives in your childbearing experience, you hopefully will only meet three or four. As you heard before with Katie, she saw multiple midwives throughout her first pregnancy. Not only that, she had seven other people in the room with her when she was giving birth to Macy, not including husband Ben. I ended up, there was sort of two or three midwives plus a student midwife, um, then the obstetrician and the paediatrician and the special care nurse at that point, and then we also had the student doctor in, and I was sort of, I suppose at that point you sort of become unconcerned after everything else that's been going on during the rest of the day. I've always been shocked that at the most vulnerable moments of our lives, i.e. having a baby, we think it's quite fine to have a bunch of strangers around you. And midwifery continuity of care is making sure that at the most vulnerable moment of your life, and probably for many women the most important, you have people around you who you know. Midwifery continuity of care isn't just important for women's sense of comfort during pregnancy and labour. It's been proven to have positive health outcomes for mothers and babies. We've got now really good evidence from what's called the Cochrane Review. And the Cochrane Library is the sort of international collection of research evidence where uh, researchers pull together all the different trials on a certain topic. So for us, we have a, now a Cochrane review on midwifery models of care, and that now shows really good outcomes for mothers and babies, both for um, reduced intervention, for um, outcomes for babies, so um, less overall deaths, less preterm births, and less cost for the organisations. Jane Sandal was the author of that Cochrane review. Jane is a professor of social science and women's health at King's College in London. So the findings of that review are that women are 24% less likely to have a premature baby. They're less likely to lose their baby before 24 weeks. Uh, They're less likely to have an instrumental birth, uh, to have sutures on their perineum. They're less likely to have pain relief. They're more likely to feel very satisfied with the care they've had. Uh, And it's cheaper. And this isn't just for low-risk women. Midwifery continuity of care can benefit high-risk women as well, who will consistently see the same midwife as well as an obstetrician throughout pregnancy. I would say it's also applicable to all women. Every woman needs a midwife. Whatever her risk factors, whatever complications she's got. And some women will need a doctor as well. But every woman will still need a midwife all the way through her care. And if you have a midwife who is navigating the system, who's coordinating her care, who's responsive, who's accessible, who's at the end of a mobile phone, it means that women feel that they have someone on their side. Despite the evidence, only 30% of Australian hospitals are offering continuity of care models. Most states have guidelines on how midwifery continuity of care should be implemented, and it is on the increase. But Caroline Homer says that there are barriers that prevent faster uptake. For the most part, there's great buy-in from government. So most governments, state governments, and maternity care is predominantly state government run, have policies supporting midwifery models of care and supporting continuity of care. The challenge is actually making it happen on the ground and getting buy-in from managers, 
um, getting startup resources because sometimes you do need a little bit of money to get started. You need to perhaps rearrange the roster, which takes a bit of energy and a bit of time. You need to perhaps have some midwives have some additional trainings. Here in New South Wales, an estimated 22% of hospitals offer midwifery models of care, despite policy documents encouraging their implementation. A spokesperson for New South Wales Health said in a statement, New South Wales Health supports the development and provision of midwifery continuity of care models within a safety and quality framework. Local health districts are responsible for developing collaborative models of midwifery continuity of care that meets the needs of local populations. These may take various forms. The ministry does not hold details of the numbers or locations of these programs. For these services to be accessible, women need to ask for them. Katie says it's a shame that many Australian women miss out on the type of care she had for baby number two. They reckon only 8% of women in Australia get access to midwifery continuity of care. Which is the scary thing. You would think in the case of high-risk pregnancies that it would be of more a concern for them to be having continuity of care than, you know, the essential low-risk day-to-day normal pregnancies. And that's essentially because it would take a lot of the stress out The pregnancy with Ruby was a lot less stressful than the pregnancy with Macy because of the familiarity of the midwife. If you'd like to find out more from that story, including the full statement from New South Wales Health, you can head to the website, 2scr.com forward slash thinkhealth. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3 online at 2ser.com or on your favourite podcast app. Aboriginal women are 34 times more likely than non-Indigenous women to end up in hospital because of family violence. This is just one part of what Indigenous health advocates are calling a violence crisis. Josephine Cashman, entrepreneur, lawyer and Indigenous advocate, was part of a discussion at the National Press Club this week. There is a clear link, the Crime Commission found, between suicide, self-harm and associated alcohol and substance abuse and domestic violence, relationship breakdowns and early life trauma from child abuse. Service providers and community members are limited in their ability to address mental health issues and identify children at risk. And it is Indigenous children themselves who are particularly vulnerable, with Indigenous children comprising 30% of suicide deaths among those under 18 years of age. Indigenous 15 to 24-year-olds are also five times as likely to suicide than their non-Indigenous peers. To try and address this issue, the federal government has released a new report titled Solutions That Work, What the Evidence and Our People Tell Us. Nina Kobel spoke with Anthony Dillon, lecturer in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the Australian Catholic University, to find out what we can learn from this latest report. So We know, for example, that when people are in environments where parents are working in meaningful jobs, kids are in school... Mental health problems, self-harm, suicide and that sort of thing are less likely to be a problem. But the problem is for far too many Indigenous people, they live in 
places where they just don't have access to the sorts of things you and I take for granted. It's a, it's a really difficult, complex problem. Is it best to be dealing with communities as a whole or should we be dealing with case-by-case situations? Now, as the report sets it out, they approach us at a few different levels, which is good. Um, so yes, you, you do need that individual attention, but you also need approaches at the, the family and community level as well. So it needs to be a multi-layered approach. And what would that look like? It would look like you have people that are being cared for, they're being seen as whole people. And I think most importantly, you would have a situation where suicide is not just dealt with from a crisis point of view. And, you know, we always, we will always need a crisis intervention, a crisis level. But when you fix a lot of the problems upstream, you fix them before they become suicide issues. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think one of the things that came up in the report was cultural security and appropriateness. So is that something that you could address in schools even? Look, each person, each community is different. Sometimes culture can be important. Ideally, families should be taking care of culture themselves. So again, I think if you have families where there's one parent working, they're in a safe, stable home, well, then healthy culture will just be a natural outcome of that. You know, personally, I don't think uh, classes and, and programs in culture should be the frontline treatment. Basically, the sort of culture Aboriginal people need is the same sort of culture you and I and the authors of the reports of the report have. So that's you know access to modern services, safe environments, that sort of thing. And this idea of empowerment that, that you've brought up, that the report brought up, what does that mean in, in the context of looking after people's psychological and, and physical health? Okay. It means that you can have some choice about um, what happens in your life, some choice in how you respond. You can't always choose your circumstances, but at least you can have some say in how you can respond. Um, so it's individuals, families and communities making some decisions for themselves and that could mean that one community choose to go about something go about you know a suicide issue slightly differently to another community they do what feels uh, what they think is best for them certainly there's a common denominator but there needs to be that variation you know at the individual and community levels so if we are talking about empowerment and about each community making the decision for themselves about what would work best, is there anything that the government from a federal or a state level actually can be doing? Yes, I think government can... Look, the big issue is basically you've either got to have services come to the people or people go to the services in the case of some remote communities where it's just not viable to set up modern services... And government have a part to play there. If a service is viable, uh, sorry, if a community is sustainable and viable, then government should invest whatever it takes to get that community started up. And if it's not viable, well, then government should pay the bill for uh, sensitively relocating those people to where they do have opportunities. That's quite hard to achieve, though, in a sensitive way. And, and when that's done wrong, it can result in huge media outcry. Is there an example where that's been done successfully? Do you know? Yeah, look, not, not, on, a, not on a large-scale basis. Individuals are making choices to move to where the 
opportunities are. And so, yes, it does have to be done sensitively. People need to be told about the success stories um, of people who have made the move and let them know that they will be supported the whole way. One one of the things that came up as well was this idea of employment, which you know you've mentioned. If if a if a child is in a family with parents who are securely employed, it makes a big difference, and it comes back to that idea of empowerment. Is the government's current policy on on generating jobs working? Do you think? Look, that, that's hard for me to say at this stage. Certainly, we read the success stories about jobs being created uh, and Indigenous people moving into jobs, and we always celebrate that, and that's great. But There are pockets around the country where there just is so few jobs that it's not going to it's not going to make a big difference at all. What What would you like to see happen in the future? I know that's a big question, but what are the priorities for you? Okay, the priorities for me would be within the indigenous population identify those who are most at risk, and one of the strengths of the report is it doesn't just have a one size fits all. It does recognise that there is diversity among the Indigenous people. So identify those who are most at risk and focus on them initially. Something interesting that I took from that report, I'm not sure if it was something interesting for you, but the idea that while many consider the process of decolonisation not to be complete, when it started it actually saw, or it, it coincided with an increase in suicides. Is that something that we should be considering or taking note of? Look, for me, it's not the highest priority, um, simply because the, the the solution is never found by digging into the past. Okay, the solution is found by focusing on the here and now. And as I said in my response, we are never ever victims of the past, but only ever victims of our view of the past. So yes, certainly acknowledge the past, but the solution is not to be found by focusing on the past. Uh, Indigenous people need the same sorts of services you and I have access to, and when they do live in that modern world, they can be just as Indigenous as they were before they embraced that modern world. They don't lose their Indigenous, their Aboriginal status, by embracing modern services. Terms like colonisation, decolonising and that sort of thing, uh, I think that can be a distraction from focusing on what works. Anthony Dillon, lecturer in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the Australian Catholic University, talking with Nina Kopel. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. When it comes to healthcare, you would hope that what is happening in hospitals and aged care is evidence-based. But that's not always the case, as doctors and nurses get stuck in the trap of this is the way we've always done things. And there's also a lack of interest when it comes to reading and analysing new research papers. Caleb Ferguson and Louise Hickman from UTS set out to change this among postgraduate nursing students. They set up what's called a Twitter journal club to see if they could improve students' engagement and understanding of research papers. Hi, my name's Louise Hickman. I'm an associate professor at the Faculty of Health at UTS. Uh, My name's Caleb Ferguson and I'm a postdoc research fellow at the Graduate School of Health. So when we're talking about evidence-based practice, what's the gap between what's what we know is evidence and what actually happens in hospitals? 
So I, I guess in terms of nursing and the care that patients receive in hospital, it should be based on the best available evidence. And so evidence-based practice really comprises of a few different elements. And um, one of it is the the best available research evidence that's out there, and um, the clinician's own expertise, and then also um, the individual patient's own circumstances. So when we're providing care to patients, we need to consider all three of these things to, to make healthcare decisions and to provide care to patients that's based around these three elements as well. And does that happen regularly? Are nurses in hospitals saying, I've just read a paper on this, this is how we need to do it? I guess there's there's a lot of um, gaps and there's a lot of lag. Um, I think there's, there's quite a lot of papers that are published in academic research that's published every day, and um, just you know that generates new evidence and new ways of caring for patients. And I guess there's a lot of logistical challenges um, in terms of getting clinicians to then change behaviour in terms of adopting those evidence-based approaches. So. There's a few sort of challenges there in terms of keeping on top of the evidence, so so being aware of new studies that are out there and um, also being equipped with the skills that are required to to provide, uh, to interpret that that research and then provide that care to the patients. And there are organisations that support translating evidence into practice, so they might pull a group of papers together that are all on one topic and they help translate that evidence for health professionals whether it be nurses, doctors, allied health staff to translate it into practice but it's not the same as say pharma companies that have reps out there who are really pushing key messages from their latest trials. So I mean it's really important that the different health professionals really focus on what evidence is out there, where to best get it and then translate it to practice. But to do that, they need to understand it and they need to understand what they read. So how do we go about explaining to students what is the best academic research to use? Most health degrees in Australia have always had subjects within their curriculum that focus on evidence-based practice and research and what they entail and what you need to know but what we've lacked is real engagement in those subjects and a love of learning those subjects and a love of wanting to know that information because they've been notoriously dry and unengaging um, and quite methodological in their approach. You've both taught these subjects what is it like for a student what do you see in the students? I guess traditionally, as Louise has already said, that traditionally students find these subjects quite boring and dry would be the two <laughs> words that, that students use in student feedback a lot of the time. And as educators, we try and make these um, subjects really exciting for students to, to really get them to engage with the content and to achieve the objectives of the, of the subject. In the past, we've tried to select really cool and funny papers, particularly a lot of the BMJ do, and um, they do a Christmas edition. So some of the weird and wonderful methods are around about different topics. Um, when we're talking about evidence in nursing, what evidence is there in engaging students in their learning? Well, I'll let Louise answer this. Well, that's sort of how this, these papers that we've published have come about. So we've did a systematic review to look at what are the best teaching and learning strategies to engage students in evidence-based practice and research and health, like or just the, conceptually those kind of subjects. And there is no high-level evidence out there. So there's nothing to guide you on how no, best qualita- to engage. There's some really nice qualitative studies, but when you actually look at it across larger numbers and you want a higher-quality study that really robustly says these things actually help 
it hasn't yet been done. So we've sort of had to go back to the drawing board and really start unpacking and exploring what we do, why we do it, how we do it, and really doing some really good groundwork with students. And this is how um, Caleb's come up with his journal club. So well, yeah, let's go back a step. What is the journal club? What is journal club? Yeah, so journal clubs have been around for quite a long time. So usually it follows a standardised um, format whereby um, the participants of the journal club uh, receive a paper, and um, you'd come together and um, really just um, looking at some of the key hallmarks of the paper, um, some of the limitations, and and really getting a good critical appraisal of the research design and interpretation of some of the findings. Caleb, you've taken this journal club one step further. What have you done? I've had a a huge interest in in the last few years around using social media in health and wanted to sort of apply some of this to nurse education in particular. So really, I think that the idea for this also came from... um, uh, on Twitter, we have uh, things called um, moderated tweet chats, which aren't quite a new thing, but there's a really strong group um, called We Nurses. And so those chats are, are, are based around a certain topic, use a hashtag, and then um, people can engage on them on Twitter quite easily. Um, so we took that sort of idea and that model and then thought about how we can apply that in the classroom. Um, so we... we came up with the idea of a Twitter journal journal club whereby students would engage um, through a Twitter account and engage with the critical appraisal of a research article. You said this was a very dry topic area. Was the use of Twitter or social media, did that help the engagement levels? I've never ever seen anything like this in my whole entire time of teaching ever in a classroom. We have a really cool picture that we took a photo of students in the classroom and they're all sat, so I think there's about 60 students in the first class and we had some additional tech support and academic support for the first um, session but the classroom was deadly silently (laughs) (laughs) Um, quiet. Uh, they were all focused on the task with their device and really engaged with the topic and the questions. And I don't know if this was really related to the novelty aspect of it, but it was really just this really awesome experience. I think, you know, the principles of participation, like they own it, they're in charge, they can participate at all different levels where they feel comfortable. And it's probably, I mean, it was done in a very safe, inclusive forum. When you think of what an engaged classroom looks like, dead silence is not that image. You you have a, maybe a robust debate in mind. Yeah. yeah, I think this is a really engagement on a different level. Like traditionally, you'd think of this, you know, very active classroom, very noisy environment, and people yeah, engaging in robust debate. But um, people still did engage in debate, but. Um, silently uh, and through this uh, through this platform which is really cool um, and I guess it's how you think of, of engagement and how you think of social media engagement and um, active participation too yeah. It's one thing to be across all this information but how do you then go into your healthcare team and say you're a junior in that team how do you then speak up to those senior members who may be saying something different to the research mm. That's communication can be really difficult, and if you look at a lot of issues that even when things go wrong, often when you drill down, it's not something that's easily quantifiable. It comes down to either larger system problems or communication issues. So really upskilling people on how to have 
difficult conversations in a non-confrontational way just so as a professional whether you're a junior nurse or a junior doctor or you're just another consultant working with another consultant you've got completely different views or agendas like how do you best come together and for me I know I always come from the perspective of the patient so what is in the patient's best interest and all of us are there to advocate for patients regardless of discipline so you've got to say you know, ask questions sometimes are the easiest way to do you can ask a question without pointing fingers you know can you tell me about this I've read about it do you know about it and they might say yes we are quite aware of that but at the moment we're doing this because of why and this patient's needs require this so it is it is complex and that's why the ability to communicate clearly is really important and to ask questions Caleb Ferguson and Louise Hickman from the University of Technology, Sydney, ending that story. If you'd like to find out more about anything you've heard today, head to 2SER.com forward slash thinkhealth. If you've enjoyed today's show, make sure you subscribe so you won't miss a moment. And if you have any questions, go and see your GP. Think Health is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health and 2SER. I'm Ellen Lee Beta. Thanks for your company.